This is an incredible passage we get to look at today. But before we get into that, I want to ask you all a question. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? Now, if that's not a loaded pastor question, I don't know what is. What kind of church would you like to be a part of? It's a scary question, because the answer might be, not this one. And <laughs> as a pastor, I, I, I go, hmm. But this question is important, because what we're actually asking is, the, the church being the people, the body of Christ, what characteristic, what attribute should we have in abundance that would make this a church that you'd want to be a part of? What fruit of the Spirit is it that we should have that should be the thing that's on display that we're known for? And so Paul doesn't mince words on this. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 2 of Philippians, he tells us the characteristics of a gathering of believers, which is what this is. Here's what he says in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Now that sounds like a pretty amazing group of believers, a pretty amazing church to be a part of. Look at what it says. It says they have love, they have comfort, they have participation in the Spirit, they have affection, they have sympathy, they have unity, and then they have more love. Sounds like a pretty great group to be around. I mean, think about that. That, that would be a great church to be at if that was what we were known for. But Paul isn't going to just leave us there. He's not going to say, here's what you guys should be like, good luck with that. He's actually going to take some time and explain to us how to get there. And see, this is not just a church thing, because if we were to ask what would be the kind of people we would want to be around outside of church, at work, in our family, in our friendships, in our marriage, each of those would be the same characteristics that we would want in our church as well. And so as he's giving us this answer, he's actually giving us an answer that's bigger than just the church body. It's actually all relationships everywhere. So I think it's pretty sweet that he combines these two together. And here's the spoiler alert. He told us what it was in the first verse that Rick just read. It is humility. Humility. Now, when we think of humility, a lot of times we look at it and we go, this is somebody who's always talking down about themselves and kind of looking for people to come along and go, oh, you're not that bad. But that's not the definition of humility that Paul gives us here. Instead, Paul says the kind of person that is humble is the one who cares for everyone else before themselves. Literally that loving your neighbor as yourself. And this is the biblical model. And this is the kind of church, this is the kind of people we want to be around. This is the kind of people that Paul encourages us to be. So we're going to look at this today. We're going to dig into what Paul is arguing here because it's very important for us today. But we've got to do a little bit of work where we've been for the last few weeks. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks or if this is your first time, either way, you're going to get caught up right now in our review session. So our review is we've been talking about preaching to yourself. We've been talking about this idea of starting with the core truth that God is and what God is like, and then building off of that into what he's done, who we are, and then going from there. And this is really the idea of somebody's always talking to you. 
It's usually yourself, and you don't usually do it out loud. You usually do it in your own head, and you believe certain truths that you say are truths about your life. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, no, 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 those truths are lies. Believe this truth that we see in God's word and build out of it into the life that I am going to give you. So we see this progression. Who is God? What has he done? Who am I in light of what he's done? And now we get to the fourth step, the, the, the branches of the tree, if you will. And so I want to take a second and kind of explain why we did it in this order. Because we'll read a verse. So let's take a verse about humility. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he will exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now when we read a verse like that, our, our gut responses go, i got to be humble. i got to try really hard. i gotta, I got to just effort it out. And, and the problem with that is that that's the end result of all of these other things that you need to make sure are right in what you believe and where your heart is set. There's a reason why Peter waited till chapter 5 to tell you what to do. We want to get to the tell us what to do, Lord, so we can have this, this life that you've promised us without first making sure we understand the truths that it's based on. There's not a better example of this than the book of Romans. The book of Romans is 16 chapters long, 15 chapters of teaching. And the first 11 chapters are all truth statements about us. We call it, as pastors and anybody who's familiar with the English language, we call this indicatives. This is what you are. So Paul spends hundreds of verses, 11 full chapters, saying, this is what you are, church. And then in chapter 12, only chapter 12 through 15, does he then tell us what to do? The imperatives. And there's a reason why he does it this way. Paul doesn't start off and go, hey, you know, you guys need to submit to your governing authorities. You need to love each other as yourself. You need to be humble. And here's why. Because he knows our, gut, our, our, our way of thinking is we want to get right to the what to do. We don't necessarily want the why and the reasons for it. And when we do that, we've tapped out of the power. See, the power comes in our lives not from me trying harder, me being able to be guilt-tripped enough by the pastor to be able to do what you're supposed to do. It comes from tapping into God's promises through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and making those ours. And that's how God always does it. And so we're going to today add that fourth step, if you will, on our tree that we've been working on. And we're going to get to that fourth step because once we get who God is, what he's done, who we are in light of that, then the fruit comes. Those fruit of the Spirit, the, the, the actions of the Spirit in our lives come. Because the Spirit's job is always to point to somebody else, point to Christ, point to God. So let's practice this. And you can see the tree. Kyle, would you put the tree up there on the screen for me? This is the, this is the tree that we're working on. So we have our gospel roots, who God is, what he's done, who am I, and then what are the behaviors. So as we look at this, here's an example of this. So who is God? God is perfect. He is perfect. He has no flaws. He's not lacking. So what has he done? He sent Jesus to live perfectly for me. So then what does that mean? Who am I? Well, when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see wretched old me. 
He sees Christ. So then what's the fruit? The fruit is I'm no longer serving God to try to make him happy with me. I'm no longer serving God to get right with him. I'm already right with him. I get to serve him out of joy. I get to serve him out of the fact that I am so blessed by him that I can't help but talk about him. Here's another example. God is almighty and all-powerful. He controls everything. So what has he done? Well, he brought Christ to live on my behalf who conquered death for me. He beat death. So who am I? Well, I'm more than a conqueror. Because ultimately, nothing in this world can touch me. If Jesus beat our arch enemy, which is death, then guess what? The fruit is peace. It's joy. It's hope. Because the worst thing that can happen to me is that I die. And I get to go home to be with the Lord. And that can't touch me. I die once. I don't die twice. So you see, this is how we take God's word, which first must be what we are dwelling in. We're in God's word, and we allow the Holy Spirit to build it up in us so that we can produce the fruit that he asks us to do. And so today, as we dig into this idea of humility, this is a fruit built off of the foundation that Paul's going to lay out for us. It's not a, hey, everybody, go be humble, because Pastor John says we need to have a better church, or we could be a better church if we all were just humble. No, the point of today is get into Christ. Understand who we are in Christ, and that just makes you humble, and that will be what we are known for. It doesn't start with the humble. Don't put the cart before the horse. Starts with who Christ is and who we are in Christ. That leads to humility. So here's our big idea. The big idea is believing the gospel produces humility. Believing the gospel produces humility. Remember, we talked about this before, the idea that because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we are now in Christ. We are unified in Christ so that we get the, the, the treatment by God that Christ gets that he so rightly earned. So verses 3 through 11 is what Rick read, and we're going to be spending our time in it. Verses 3 through 11 explain how to have the relationships in verses 1 and 2. See, Paul's been spending all of his time in Philippians explaining who we are, and then in verses 1 and 2 he says, and this is what it's going to look like when you're all together, and here's how you get there. So here we go. Verses 3 and 4 are the first little kind of couplet. And these two verses are unique in that they start out with a negative and follow it with a positive. And this is a very creative teaching style. It's one thing to say, don't do something, but it's a lot better, it's a better form of teaching to say, don't do this, instead do this. And that's what we see in verses 3 and 4. So read them with me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourselves. So the negative is, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. And the positive is, count others more significant. So what do these words mean? Well, selfish ambition means wanting your way so much that you push others out of the way. It's, it's a factionalism. It's partisanship. It's a, it's a strife-producing group where it says, my way is the best way, my way or the highway. So that's what this first one is. This idea of conceit, this means my glory over everything else. 
So even if it means I'm the only one that thinks I'm the best, as long as that's there, I'm okay because it's all about me. And so what Paul's saying is, don't be that person. Don't make it all about you and don't make it all about your group. Instead, make it about others. So he introduces this word, humility. The word humility means low or shabby or humble. This verse actually defines it for us. It says, count others more significant than yourself. The word significant means supreme. So it's to count everybody else as supreme and you as the lowest. What's interesting about this word is that this word did not exist in ancient Greek and it did not exist in Latin. This is a made-up word. It never was applied to human beings ever in a positive way until the Apostle Paul and the New Testament writers. They had to actually invent a word because in the Greek and Roman mind, you never put yourself down. You always put yourself higher. And so their words were the highest, the second highest, the third highest. There was never who's on the bottom. They just didn't even talk about that. But the Apostle Paul goes, this is our place at the bottom. Charles Spurgeon says, the way to heaven is downhill, not uphill. We go lower, not go higher. And that's the picture that we see here. John Chrysostom, uh, early church father, said, there's nothing more foreign to a Christian than arrogance. See, when we see ourselves as we actually are, and even better than that, when we see Christ as who he is, we can't help but be humble. This idea of selfish ambition and conceit and pursuing our own glory becomes worthless because we've seen how great Christ is. Verse 4, let each of you look not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. So the, positive, the negative is, do not look at your own interests. The positive is, look at everybody else's. I mean, it, this is the definition of effective parenting, isn't it? If, you, if you're a parent who's worried only about your meals and your sleep and your free time, your kid is going to suffer because you can't care for them and have both especially little babies, especially youngsters. This idea is very foreign to us, though, because everything in our world is have it your way, have it the way you want it, be exactly the way you want it, your needs first. Spurgeon again said, the apostle knew that to create unity and harmony, you must first have humility of mind. People do not quarrel when their ambitions have come to an end. When everyone's willing to be least... When everyone desires to have others in higher places than themselves, the contentious cliques disappear. Factions and divisions pass away. He's saying, if we fight to see who can be the lowest, nobody's going to be fighting for the highest, and where is our strife going to be? It's not going to be there. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, uh, the doctor-turned-preacher, has this story. He says, a friend of mine asked me one day, how can I be humble? He felt that he had a lot of pride in himself. He wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some remedy and could tell him, do this, do that, and you will be humble. Instead, I said to him, I have no method. I have no technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and pray because as soon as you start doing that, you're going to be prideful about your prayer and being down on your knees. Instead, the only thing I can tell you is look to Jesus because when you look on him, you can't be prideful. And that's really where it comes down to. It's this idea, it's the only way. Humility is not something we can muster up. I am so good at being humble. As soon as you say that, you're prideful. 
Rather, it's you look to Jesus and you go, oh my gosh, he's so great. I am such a wretch. And this is what Paul does. Paul's going to take us now in verses 5 through 11, and he's going to point us to Christ. So verses 5, verses 5 through 11 are one big run-on sentence. The Apostle Paul would have gotten graded down by an English teacher because this is one really long run-on sentence. It's probably a song, so maybe we'll give him a pass on that because artists should have the right to do the songs the way they want. But even, even if it's not a song or even if it's a poorly written sentence, it's Paul's heart towards this church in Philippi. He's saying, this is the attitude you should have. And you can see his care for not only Christ, but also for the Philippians, in that he's saying, this is what you should be like. So verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So the first thing we see is Christ is the example. He's the perfect example. One Christian writer said, if you want to know what it's like to be like God, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, Humility is the third thing. So this idea that humility is the, the, the defining trait of Christians, which means little Christ, it's to be like Jesus, is to be humble. Notice here in verse 5 it says, among yourselves, not among yourself. You can't be humble all by yourself because there's nobody bumping into you. There's nobody vying for who's first. And so this idea of humility is a communal thing. You have to be in community in order to be humble. And then it says, have this mind of Christ, mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. To have the mind of Christ requires knowing the mind of Christ. How could anyone know the mind of Christ? Well, through the inspiration of Scripture, we see right here, Paul's going to tell us what Christ is thinking. And these are the kind of verses we just need to latch on to because we're supposed to be like Christ. And sometimes we're going, I don't know what he's doing on that. Why is he saying that to the fig tree? Why is he cursing? The, why, what, is, what does he mean when he says this? It makes no sense. So when we find verses like this that say this is what he's thinking, we need to latch on and really hone in on this. So now as we look... So our first point we see is that Christ made himself low. Christ made himself low. Now notice the words that were chosen there. Not Christ was the lowest. Not Christ was forced to go low by God the Father. But Christ made himself low. See, Christ had this exalted position. He had all the privileges, all the advantages that we wish we could have. He was higher than the high. But instead of holding on to those, he gave them up, became flesh, became a servant, and then marched willingly to the cross. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But this is the mindset we need to try to get our minds wrapped around. So verse 6 focuses on what Jesus doesn't do. Verses 7 and 8 tell us what he does do. Verse 6, who... Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So when it says in the form of God, this is talking about Jesus' pre-existence. What it means is before he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, he always existed as God. He was always God. 
And you look at that word there and you say, well, he was? That's a weird word. Well, Paul chooses a Greek word here that doesn't, it's not the usual was. Instead, what it is, is it's saying he has always been this way. It's a continuous word. It's in a tense that allows it to be, he was in the form of God, he is in the form of God, he will be in the form of God. It's continuous. And even that word form, that word form has a a nuance to it in the Greek that's unchanging. So Jesus never stops being God, even when he's incarnate in flesh. Being in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is basically the same idea. Equality here means exactly the same size, quantity, quality, character, number. That's what the definition is. It means exactly the same. What the Apostle Paul is saying is Jesus is God, and he did not account the fact that he was God as something that he should hold on to and lord over us. Instead, he sets aside his privileges to come down and enter into flesh, which by itself is the greatest miracle in the history of the world, the most humble act in the history of the world. But he doesn't just stop with him coming down and being a good example, because then he marches to the cross and becomes the perfect sacrifice as well. This idea of grasp means to selfishly exploit. See, Jesus has all of the privilege of being God. He has every right to say, no, I'm not going down there for those, those human beings. I'm going to stay up here and have it good. But instead of being that selfish, he's humble. And he says, I will do it. Remarkably, Christ did not imagine that having equality with God should lead him to hold on to his privileges. It's not something to be exploited and kept. Instead, he had the mindset where he says, I will count others as more significant than me. The God of the universe, the most significant being in all of creation says, I'm not going to hold on to that. I'm going to count these lowly worms, humans, as more valuable, and I'm going to go and I'm going to live and die for them. So that leads us to verse 7, which is his supreme selfless servant. But emptying himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this is his humility in the incarnation. He's humbling himself to become human. This word emptied himself doesn't mean he stopped being God. Instead, what it means is he gave himself no reputation. He gave himself no reputation. Literally, divesting yourself of privilege, divesting yourself of position. He took on the lowest position possible so that he could meet the needs that we had. A.W. Tozer says, Jesus veiled his deity, he did not void his deity. He didn't stop being God, instead he emptied himself of all of his privileges and he said, being God is exactly what you're seeing right here, which is putting others ahead of yourself. You want to be like Jesus? Put others ahead of yourself. And Paul is stressing this. He's saying, even though he's the king of the universe, he sets it aside to come down to us. See, we need to, we need to linger here a little bit and marvel at this. Jesus did not diminish his deity. When he assumed human flesh, he never became less than fully God. He was fully God the entire time. What did, Jesus did yield was his free exercise of all of his powers and all of his rights. He likewise sacrificed an intimate relationship with God when God put the wrath 
that we all deserve onto Jesus. He took on humanity and yet remained fully God. It could not be that he gave up his place as God and says, you guys go do the same thing because we don't have a place, right? So if, if people think that this is, well, Jesus gave up being God and that's how humble he was, and then Jesus says, go do the same, I'm not God, you're not God, so what is Jesus telling us to do? It's not that he gave up who he was, he gave up his rights. He gave up his rights. I mean, think about it. The, the people that he created were the ones that cried, crucify him. They're the ones that were hammering the nails. They're the ones that were lifting him up and hitting him with the, with the scourge. These same individuals, he gave up his right to say, stop. He gave up his right to call the 12 legions of angels to stop. He gave up those rights. It says he became a servant. This literally means a slave. It means a bond servant, someone who has given their life to another. Given their life to another. And this form of servant is contrasted with form of God. While he had every right to stay comfortable in heaven where he was in a position of power, his love drove him to a position of weakness. Look at what 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says. It says, For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. His poverty makes us rich. The emptying is him coming human. But that's not enough, is it? Coming and living a perfect life, you know, he, he can credit that to us, but we've got all this sin in the way, and that's where verse 8 takes us, to this supreme shame. Being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is Christ's humility in his death. His death is the most humble act. Because it's humble enough that God became man. Became man, became cold, became hungry, became, you know, stubbing his toe. All of those things he became as a human. But that wasn't enough. He also had to go to the cross. See, the cross was so offensive, Roman citizens weren't allowed to be crucified. It was one of the perks of being a Roman citizen. Oh, in case you do something really bad, we can't crucify you. That's a nice perk. I think that's one that we should all have. But the cross was not just a way of killing someone. And it wasn't, even a very, it wasn't even a very convenient way of doing it. It took a while. But the cross was about breaking down the person. It was the ultimate form of humiliation. And no matter how we've seen it displayed, whether we see a picture of the cross or we see something like the passion of the Christ, it's worse. Most crucifixions, the individual on the cross was naked. Most crucifixions involved people spitting and throwing things at him. Most crucifixions involved wild animals eating the person. This is a breakdown of the person to the point that there is no lower place to go. No other form of death, no matter how agonizing or prolonged, could not equal the destruction of the person on the cross. This is the ultimate antithesis of what it means to be the highest person. If God is the highest being possible and Jesus is God, the crucifixion and being on that cross is literally the lowest he could go. There is no other way, no other place that's that far apart. And again, imagine the humility here. As the soldiers drive the nails into his wrists and his feet, 
as they're hurling insults, as they're covering his face and punching him in the face, as they're pushing down the crown of thorns. He knows each individual. He knows the numbers of hairs on their head. He knows their great-grandparents. He knows what they ate for breakfast. Them. He knows all of this. And yet, humbly, the creator allows himself to be slain by the creation. The shepherd is murdered by his sheep. The creator of life submits to death. This is the ultimate humiliation. And Paul wishes us to understand that this bands of love that God has for us are so strong. And to show this, he shows it on the cross. He says every spiritual disease we have was taken care of on that cross because God went the lowest. Jesus went the lowest. There is food for every spiritual virtue in the Savior. We cannot go to him enough. See, no one was ever as humbled as Christ was. We know all sorts of people that we would say, oh, that person's very humble. They don't compare. Because no one has ever started so high and gone so low. No one ever gave up so much to go so low. So why did Jesus have to go so low? Why did he have to do this? Why couldn't he just have been killed with a sword? Why does it have to be the cross? Well, he had to come to where we were in order to rescue us. And this is a statement about how far away we were from God. See, it doesn't do any good if someone falls in a well and you go, hey, I'll meet you halfway. I'm going to come halfway down. You come the rest. Come on, it's only fair. That's not the picture in the Bible. We are stuck in the hole. We cannot get out. As the more we dig, the farther we sink down. And Jesus comes all the way down below us and lifts us up. That is the picture of the gospel. That is the picture of what the cross was. The Son of God leaving the courts of heaven, going to the cross to bring us up. Galatians 2.20, we, we've been reading it every single week who loved me and gave himself for me. See, it's important that we get, this was not forced on Jesus. This is not some divine child abuse where God the Father goes, Jesus, you gotta go do this. And Jesus goes, oh man, okay, this is gonna stink. No, instead, this is Jesus saying, I am choosing this. I am humbling myself. Look at what it says. It says, he did not hold tightly to his equality. He emptied himself. He became a servant. He became a human. He humbled himself. It's all Jesus doing it himself. He is choosing it. Like the Max Lucado novel, he chose the nails. He chose the crucifixion. He chose going the lowest. C.S. Lewis says, in the Christian story, God descends so that he may reascend. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath a great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must disappear under the load before he can incredibly straighten his back and march off carrying it home. Is that not the picture of Christ? He went so low because that's where we were and he brings us up out of it. So that's the first part. Jesus himself, he went low. The second part is that God raised him high. Verses 9 through 11. His voluntarily, 
humiliating himself leads to God's highest exaltation. He lifts him up to the highest point. Not only does he lift him up, but he gives him a name above every other name so that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Verse 9, this supreme exaltation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name above every name. The word therefore just means for this reason, because of the things that have happened right before, because of his humiliation, God is going to raise him up, lift him up. This becomes the means of his exaltation. By humbling himself on the cross out of love, he demonstrated that he shared the divine nature of God, which is love. And then the response, God's response, he exalts him and he gives him a name. This name that we're talking about here is the name Yahweh. In the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the Jews would not even translate this name. It would just be Y-H-W-H. It was so holy, they would not even put vowels in there. They would just leave it alone. When a scribe would come across this word in the Old Testament, he would write the name, and then he'd go destroy the quill, wash his body, and come back and continue writing. They held his name to such high an honor. When the Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the word Lord. That's the word that we're seeing added to Jesus here. This word Lord means you are the highest of the high. You are over other people, which is a ridiculous word to use for Jesus because he never owned anything. He never owned land. He never was an elected official. He didn't conquer anything. If anything, he was the exact opposite of a Lord. He was a criminal dying on a cross. And so when it says Jesus was given this name, it's he's confirmed the name. Because Jesus said it all the way through, remember? That's why people wanted to stone him. Because he was saying he was equal with God. And he was right. And God's taking him and letting him die and raising him again confirms it. Jesus being given this name is a sign that he is God. So the two purposes. Why was he given this name? Every knee would bow, every tongue confess. So verse 10, we see supreme submission. We see the submission of everyone. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Paul doesn't need to go any farther. Every knee means all knees everywhere. But just to make sure we don't miss it, he says in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That means Every being in the universe, angels, demons, rulers, paupers, all are going to bow the knee. They're going to bow the knee to Yahweh, and Jesus is Yahweh. Verse 11, we see the supreme confession, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Confess means to agree. Eventually, every single person is going to kneel before Jesus and confess that he is God. Some will do it willingly with blessedness. Others will do it unwillingly with pain. And this is the promise that is given here. And it says, because Jesus went so low, this is the result. The result that every one of us is going to stand, well, I'm sorry, every one of us is going to kneel before God. We will do it willingly. We'll do it unwillingly. So what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? How does this apply to me today on May 9th, 2021? Many people will say, hey, so this is what this verse is saying, is if you go low enough, you're going to get good stuff. If you just go low, the more humble you are, the better you're going to be. But do you see that that's actually 
offering you the same thing that someone that's going to be the best is dealing with. So if I want to be the best, I'm going to go, I want to be the best. So I'm going to go after it. We can't use humility to go, I'm going to be really humble so I can be the best. It's defeating the entire purpose of this, and it's getting this wrong. But I can see why we would have this problem. Look at Matthew 11. I'm sorry, Matthew 23, 11, that says, The greatest among you must be the servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Or like the passage in 1 Peter 5 that says, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you. These verses seem to say, if you go low enough, he's going to lift you up and make you great. I mean, that's, that's how I read it. But I have to say, that's 100% wrong. We're missing the point. We're missing the point of this passage. See, the foundation of this is not I'm going to go so low to make myself so great. It's I'm going to go so low because I'm in my Savior, and when he's made great, I'm made great as well. So the exaltation is actually Jesus's, and I get to participate because Jesus died on the cross, and I get to participate in his death, life, and resurrection. And so there's this picture here we need to make sure we don't miss. It's that I am not exalted because of anything I do. I'm exalted because of who I am in. And if I'm in Christ, I will be lifted up, not because of my humility, but because of Christ. It's like the fans, right? We, we, it's like a, a basketball team, and your team wins, and we won, and they lost, and it's those guys lost. We find our identity in somebody else's victory. That's exactly what it means to be exalted in these passages. Every single one of them is we are exalted because of who we are in, who we are unified with, not what we have done. This place of humility never stops because even when we are raised up, it's because of him. I mean, think about it. The, the work of being humbled is done by the Spirit. Salvation is done as a free gift of God. What part can we contribute we can contribute the sins that sent Jesus to the cross. Other than that, we've got nothing. Our humility comes from the fact we're in Christ. Our good works come from the Spirit inside of us. Our skills, our talent, our time, treasure, that came from God because he gave it to us. He made it. Spurgeon says, the best definition of humility I ever heard is to think rightly about ourselves. See, when we start thinking that we are the cat's pajamas, that we are the top dog, we're forgetting that God is the top dog, and any value I have is found solely because I am in Christ. Nothing else counts. Nothing else matters. We are not lifted up because of our humility, nor are we going to long for that lifting up. We're not supposed to. We're to participate in the lifting up of Christ and making him look great. So when we see that all of this is from God, we are humbled and placed in a position where we will exalt our, be exalted with Christ. And you can see this, 1 Peter 5.10, a few verses after that one I read you in a, minute, a minute ago, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, so we're, this glory we're getting is in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. See, the church that Christ is building is one that he's building based upon his life and being in him. 
one that he establishes, that he animates. So we are to become that group of people who love each other and work to outdo each other in making each other look good, to work to outdo each other in doing good to each other. Not because it's what Christians do, not because it will get me a bigger mansion in heaven, not because it gets me entrance into heaven, but because I am in Christ and I am being like my Savior. I am walking the path he did where he said, I'm going to go as low as possible no matter what I may deserve. This humility of heart looks to the needs of others. So a final thought. One cannot be a follower of Christ without sharing the mind of Christ. This command to have his mind calls for real relationships. We can't care for others if we don't know the interests of others. And once we have these interests, we should outdo each other with whatever powers and privileges we have to care for others. Hoarding is not the path to joy. Giving is. What does it say? We will find it more blessed to give than to receive. When we cultivate this good news, this gospel humility, pride and high-mindedness is gone. We must behold the one who is high above us and yet did not regard it as something to hold on to. So I leave you with this question. If Christ, the God of the universe, took off the royal robes and put on a servant's towel to die for us, how can we say that any call to serve others for his sake is beneath us? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your, your son. I, we just can't say that enough, Lord. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his life, his death, and his ultimate resurrection on our behalf. Lord, we have sin and we have all sorts of things wrong with us, but yet you went to the lowest place to be able to lift us up. Lord, help us to have the right motivations for our humility, not that we would be made great, but to make you great. Not that we would earn something, but that we would glorify someone. Help us to outdo each other in showing honor, outdo each other in caring for each other, and help that to be the, the fragrance, the, the, the characteristic of this church. Not because of preaching or leadership or any of that, but because Christ is working here. So Lord, do a work in us now. Send your spirit to work on each of our hearts right here and right now. In your name, amen.